For the week of September 13th, 2017, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host. My name is Stephen Cox. Hello. On this week's show, we have our discussion with Democratic candidate for Congress in the 8th Congressional District, Dr. Kim Schreier. We also speak briefly with the stranger's Heidi Groover about the resignation of Seattle Mayor Ed Murray. And then, of course, we will have our call to action. We're talking right now with the strangers, Heidi Groover, who is joining us now to talk about the resignation of Seattle Mayor Ed Murray. Uh, Heidi, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, I know it's kind of crazy on your end, but we just kind of want to get a little bit of clarity from you if we can. So first, uh, we know that there have been several allegations of molestation uh, against the mayor, and this latest one came from his cousin, a man named Joseph Dyer. This was what ultimately led Murray to step down, which uh, happens officially uh, as of the day of the recording, September the 13th on Wednesday at 5 p.m., uh, although I should state that Murray continues to deny the allegations. So uh, after 5 p.m., uh, what is the process then uh, Uh, What's the succession? Who takes over uh, the position of mayor? Yeah, today at 5 p.m., Council President, City Council President Bruce Harrell will take the oath of office. He will be mayor for uh, around five days uh, at least. Uh, During that time, he has the ability to either um, say that he wants to stay on as mayor until the next mayor is sworn in, or another council member can become interim mayor. Um, And There's a process after that for filling whichever council seat is left open. The council will appoint someone, and then there will later be a special election for that person to either keep that seat or someone new to be elected. Uh, The key question for Harrell and his colleagues is that um, as far as we understand it from the city attorney's office and the city clerk, whichever council member becomes interim mayor will not be able to keep their council seat. And so in mid-November, when the election results are certified and either Jenny Durkin or Carrie Moon becomes the next mayor, whoever has been the mayor uh, will lose their seat. And so for Harrell, who still has a couple of years left in his term, that's a, a risk I'm sure he's considering right now. But that's obviously something, yeah, that he's going to need to think about. If he decides to not stay on after five days, then who takes over at that point? Well, the council will have to determine which of the other eight council members will take it. Um, there's discussion about maybe Tim Burgess, since he's uh, he's retiring at the end of the year anyway, so he has nothing really to lose. But he's the budget chair of the council, and so there's also some discussion about, you know, does he want to give up those responsibilities to be mayor for a couple of months? Uh, Lorena Gonzalez is another council member who's running for re-election this year, and so there's a chance she could take this and then immediately end up back on the council when she wins her seat, which is very, very likely in November. You know, you mentioned the two uh, mayoral candidates, Carrie Moon and Jenny Durkin. What have been their responses uh, officially to uh, Ed Murray stepping down? Well, they both called for him to resign after the Seattle Times story yesterday about this fifth accuser. Um, but Carrie Moon has been calling for Ed Murray to resign for several months, um, and she has spoken you know, in solidarity and support of sexual abuse survivors. Jenny Durkin, on the other hand, took Ed Murray's endorsement back in June right. after four of these five men had already come forward. Um, and you know, she said she was honored to have that endorsement. Um, and yesterday she said, you know, that these new allegations changed her mind. She didn't think Ed Murray could continue sort of overseeing the business of the city. Um, and she removed his endorsement from her website. Uh, so they're now both claiming that they thought it was the right decision for him to resign. 
Hmm. Okay. Um, any other statewide officials have weighed in at, at this point, either of Seattle's two uh, Congress members, either the senators, the governor? Yeah, uh, well, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal told the stranger in a statement, um, you know, that she supports the mayor's decision to step down. Um, Congressman Adam Smith similarly said uh, that the uh, accusations are deeply troubling and it's better for the city to be able to move forward. Uh, Governor Jay Inslee, um, you know, took a careful tact. He called this a personal issue with the mayor, said it was good that he was stepping aside. Um, we also had a really moving um, statement from a state politician, um, Representative Noelle Frame, who represents part of Seattle uh, in the state legislature. And she herself has experienced sexual abuse at the hands of a family member. And she wrote a really moving statement on her Facebook page about how this has been for her to sort of relive that trauma through this news cycle about the mayor. Um, well, so just very quickly, what happens now with Ed Murray after he steps down? I, I believe it's past the statute of limitations for any criminal charges. Um, I think it also might be past the statute of limitations for civil charges. But have you heard of any potentially being brought against him? The, the way that I understand the statute of limitations for civil charges, so first of all, you're right about criminal charges. For civil charges, the way I understand the statute of limitations is that um, it begins when the victim uh, acknowledges what has happened to them and speaks out about it in some way. Um, and so for several of these accusers who've been working through this um, trauma for many years, um, they are not able to bring any civil charges. Uh, any civil case. There's one man who more recently through counseling sort of first brought up uh, these allegations against the mayor and he had a civil case earlier this year, Um, but he dropped that case. His lawyer says he wanted to get through his counseling and recovery um, and may bring the case back next year. It's not really clear whether that will actually happen, but I believe he's the only one of the five who has the standing to bring a civil case against Mayor Ed Murray. Okay. Well, we're going to be following this. And thank you so much, uh, Heidi, for your reporting. And thanks for joining us on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. Dr. Kim Schreier is a Democratic candidate for Washington's 8th Congressional District, and she joins us now on the show. Dr. Kim Schreier, welcome. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Stefan. Of course. I just will start by mentioning that on the day that we were recording, Dave Reichert, who currently holds the seat, uh, has announced that he will not be seeking re-election. Were you surprised by that? I was very surprised by that. In fact, I had just uh, come home from from walking my child to the bus stop for his first day of school. Yeah. Uh, ran into the house, was putting on my gym clothes to go to the gym, and Michael, my campaign manager, called and told me. And <laughs> we both sort of said, whoa, this is big news. Yeah, and yeah. and it is big news. Um, you know, and I, when I was preparing for our, our show today, it occurred to me that, you know, a lot of congressional races happen pretty quietly. Um, I don't think this one is going to be one of those. I think there are going to be millions of dollars pouring into this race and a lot of scrutiny. And I just want to ask you, do, do you feel like you're prepared potentially for that level of scrutiny? I'm prepared. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, this is not what I ever imagined myself doing. Yeah. So I guess the great part about it is that I, um, I come at it with a, a new uh, viewpoint, but I also don't have years and years of political background and baggage to carry with me. So 
I am prepared for scrutiny. I have nothing to hide, and I am prepared to run a hard race. Well, we'll definitely get into some of those issues in terms of your professional background and in terms of your being relatively new to politics. Um, You're a pediatrician. Uh, You have had a practice here in Issaquah for the last 16 years. I guess first I'll ask you, I know you have a relationship with your patients and their families, and I, I know that you've had to curtail your practice to make time for your campaign, and you may actually have to close your practice if you, in fact, win. What's the response been like from parents and patients on your decision to run? Every time I hear that and somebody brings that back to my attention, my heart does this little flip inside Mm. because, yes, I've grown this practice over the past 16 years. And so there are kids who I have seen from kindergarten off to college and from babies now into high school. And um, it has been my love. Um, It is a it is not a small thing to leave a pediatrics practice, and it took a lot of soul searching. I'm not saying I was thinking about this for a long time, but really after the elections, I became so alarmed by the direction that this country was headed, and all of these decisions really directly affect my patients. So whether it's taking their health insurance away right. or destroying our environment that my patients and my child and generations after them need to live in, or whether that is cutting uh, funds from agencies that protect our air and our water and our food and medicines. All of this really just came back to my own child and my patients. And I decided that perhaps it was time to step up and do what I could for all the kids in this country and not just for the ones in the office. Was there a particular tipping point for you that made you go from running your practice to saying, no, I'm throwing my hat in the ring? Well, the moment that did it had to do with the health, the attacks on health care. But I have to tell you that I also have a son who turns nine this month. Oh, wow. The morning after the election, he woke up and asked if we had to move to a different country. Mm. And so a lot of my running is an answer to him that when something's wrong in the world, you stand up and do something about it. And that, no, you don't move to a different country. You make yours better. So this is my answer to future Sam when he says, hey, mom, what'd you do when, when Trump got elected? I like that. And I think a lot of us are sort of looking to the future in the same way and thinking, well, how are, what did we do during that time, you know, when our communities, our countries really called us to take a stand? So, yeah, I think that's great. We all look at history and think, what would I have done if I were there? And so this is my answer. Okay. Uh, so I would like to jump in and talk about policy. And since healthcare is obviously very near and dear to your heart, let's let's start there. Um, it did look like uh, health care as an agenda item for Trump was was off the table and for the Republicans. But now uh, it's been reported today that uh, Senators Lindsey Graham and Bill Cassidy are pushing a bill that would turn Obamacare funding into state block grants. I, I'm sure you don't support that. But I'm wondering how you would propose fixing the ACA? I mean, even Obama said that it wasn't perfect. How would you go about uh, trying to fix it? Right. I agree that it wasn't perfect. It was a compromise right from the start. Mm -hmm. But I mean, at least we tried to get everybody participating in that decision. So I think the first step is really to take the ACA and just stabilize it. Just let people know that they don't have to feel uncertain about whether they're going to be covered next year, whether they're going to have to stop their chemotherapy. You know, let's just get let's get the subsidies back in. Let's get the reinsurance back in, stabilize the program. And then let's start broadening programs that have a proven track record of success, like Medicare, Mm -hmm. which has a very low overhead. And I have to tell you, I would say 90 
5% of seniors who I've talked to who use Medicare love it. So we have this great program that has a low overhead. Let's let people buy into it. Let's start moving the age downwards when you qualify to be part of it. I just, um, I could go on about this. I well, think yeah, but the, so you're basically saying you would support, it's sort of like a single pair, but it's a Medicare for all type system. I, I think we need to move towards that. I don't know that we can get there overnight, but my premise is, I think that healthcare should just be a right and not a privilege. I think the fact that I'm in good shape after 33 years of diabetes shouldn't just depend on the fact that I've had insurance my whole life and I and my parents had insurance. This should be something that everybody can expect. We should all get the same standard of care. And I it bothers me that it depends on your job, your income. Healthcare is a sixth of the economy, and so the question always comes around to how do you pay for it? Um, and it's an enormous question, and it's one that you know it's th- there are many, many different answers. But I'm wondering how you would approach something like that legislatively. Sure. Okay. Here's my fuzzy math, and mm-hmm. then we can move from here. My fuzzy math is that I know how much I spend for my family of three to have insurance per year. It is roundabout. and my insurance is provided through my employer. Generally, I believe employers pay about half. I think that's how it usually works. Mm. And so if I just rough fuzzy math think, okay, right now for my family of three, there's somewhere between $20,000, $25,000 being spent on us having health insurance, I would rather see that go towards a Medicare-type program with a lower overhead, I just think that, you know, then we could cover more people. So if all the money now being spent on employer-based plans could go towards a single-payer plan, I think we'd still come out ahead. And I'm not even talking yet about things like, well, when people aren't insured and they have to go use the emergency room, those are uncompensated costs that don't even factor into these equations. It's not even talking about things like if you cut Medicaid and women have unhealthy pregnancies and then the children come out preemies or with some other problem that is going to plague them for the rest of their lives, the whole system right now is just set up to fail. Sure. And then, you know, you talk about emergency care and things like that, and it goes often uncompensated, and then therefore it, come, it comes down to the taxpayers at the municipal or state level to pick up the tab. So we're paying for it anyway. Exactly. Right? So in addition to, uh, to being a medical doctor, you also have an undergrad degree in astrophysics. And I, I'm curious to know how your science background informs your politics. Uh, can you give us an idea of that? Of course. Um, I do not, um, I consider myself a doctor more than I consider myself a scientist, but here's where the background comes in. I have been trained in looking at data, reading studies, and coming away with a conclusion. The other thing I've been trained as a scientist to do is to understand that there are experts in their fields, and if they all agree on something, we need to just trust them. (laughs) I do not need to repeat environmental studies and climate warming studies to understand that it is true. It's my job as a congresswoman to take steps to address the problems we're already seeing. I just will mention since, you know, I've talked about your background now as a physician. I have talked about, you know, and we've just discussed your 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 degree in astrophysics. You have not held elected office. You don't have a background in politics. Um, You're going to get asked about it. So how do you address your inexperience in politics? 
Well, I'm not running for president. <laughs> I do not need to be an expert in all things. What I need to do is listen to my district and represent my district. I will become fluent in lots of these topics. I will be listening all over this district. But ultimately, my job is to evaluate bills, look at them through the lens of a doctor, a mom, a scientist, a citizen of the 8th district, and evaluate what's best for our district and for our country, and then make an informed decision. I don't think that I need to have a background in politics to do that. So let's talk about the other uh, issue of the day, which is immigration. Um, as we know, Trump on Monday moved to end DACA, and it, it was just a heartbreaking decision. Um, it would appear that there is now a six-month window for Congress to act, but then uh, Trump just tweeted on Wednesday night that if Congress didn't fix it, he'd, quote, revisit it. So who knows? It's it's very fluid, and there's no predicting. But setting him aside for a moment, from a legislative standpoint, I assume that you would support a Congressional Dream Act, yeah? Of course. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is just another example of our president making bad decisions and picking fights with the wrong people. These are people who came here as kids. They are every bit as American as I am. I, I, I just don't know where he's going with this. And to then kind of hand it over to Congress. Well, this is a Republican Congress that is going to be a lot, um, well, based on experience, a lot less empathetic um, than a Democratic Congress would be. And so I feel like either way, it's just a slap and it's really um, it's heartless and reckless and thoughtless. You bring up the word empathy. And I'm I'm actually to, to me that that carries a lot of weight, especially in terms of how it might translate as what we might consider a Democratic value. Um, how do you see empathy playing a role in government? I think empathy is at the core of the Democratic Party. I mean, there are laws, but all laws are meant to be interpreted with your heart and with some common sense. And I think that right now we're seeing a lack of empathy, whether that is for the dreamers, whether that's for people who don't have funds, who can't afford to pay for their medical care, who need WIC, who need whatever it is. There's just this lack of um compassion for our fellow human being. And I think that government can play a role in making sure that we are all taken care of. When our society, um, when we all do well, we all do well. And mm -hmm. I think it is government's job to take care of all of us and to make sure that in this really wealthy country, there just aren't people who have food insecurity, job insecurity, it's just not appropriate. I absolutely agree. So I want to talk about climate, uh, which I think is a more pressing issue now than ever with you know Hurricane Harvey and now uh, with Irma uh, bearing down on Florida, which reportedly is the most powerful Atlantic Ocean storm ever recorded. Trump has pulled out of the Paris Accords. Uh, there's still a lot of denial from Republicans in Congress on the issue, and you kind of alluded to that earlier. Um, how do you work to bring about change in policy uh, on climate? Well, I think we need to keep driving home the message that this is real. This is not theory. This is proven science, and we need to act immediately. I think uh, in Congress, boy, let's get back into the Paris Accords. Locally, let's double down on a clean energy economy. Mm -hmm. 
Let's stop doubling down on coal and fossil fuels. It's just ridiculous. Um, and I don't know why we need this throwback to the old days. We really need to be doubling down on what's better for our planet. Um, from a very practical standpoint, I read an article the other day about Florida and building codes and that they were considering relaxing some of the codes that were put into place after, I believe it was Hurricane Andrew, which is not so many letters away. Mm -hmm. um, and now here we are looking at Irma. And um, we need to also shore up our own infrastructure to be prepared for these events. Because while we can slow the warming of our planet, I don't think we can reverse what's already happened. Most scientists say you can't, yeah. So we're, we're going to see more of these really horrific storms. We're going to see more fires. We're just going to see more of this. And at least... Let's help protect ourselves by elevating our homes and making our bridges higher and building seawalls. And I'm not saying that's the answer. We need to also slow the warming of this planet. But let's be smart about not rebuilding a bunch of houses on the coast. As we know, the 8th District has been gerrymandered to be very favorable to a Republican. Uh, and so it is very challenging, I think, for a Democrat to have a message that will resonate with progressives in places like King County uh, without alienating people in, say, Chelan, Kittitas, Pierce Counties. How do you view that challenge? I don't think it's that much of a challenge. <laughs> I think that we all have common values. And I don't think that I'm going to lose a progressive voter because I don't jump straight into free four-year colleges. I just don't think that's going to happen. Let's well, work on... What are some of the common values in your mind? Sure. Uh, number one, protect our planet. Everybody wants that. Number two, let's have great public education. I will just stop and say the way in which we protect our planet is something that I think can be kind of loaded, right? I think a lot of people on the right have a tendency to see environmental protection as being anti-growth, anti-business, things like that. So I guess that's sort of the area that I'm trying to, to kind of drill down on. Um, so, if, so for example, how, in, in that particular instance, how would you make your stance against climate change, how would you make that message appealing to both, say, progressives and maybe people who lean more to the right, maybe on the other side of the mountains, for example? Right. Um, I think that this is all about framing. So we don't talk about putting more regulations in place, which does not appeal necessarily on the uh, on the eastern part of the district. Uh, but instead talking about creating a clean energy economy, which will bring jobs and clean energy and renewable energy all at the same time. This can shore up our economy and be responsible to the earth all at the same time. There were some other issues that you felt were uh, sort of uniting issues, and I cut you sure. off, so please continue. That's all right. Well, public education. I... I uh, I am a product of public education all the way through, including medical school. Mm. <laughs> and I really believe that our kids should come, first of all, out of high school, well prepared for whichever path they choose. And for some kids, that is college, but not for all of them. So let's just get high school short up because there's people who don't even want to go to trade school, don't even want to go to college. They just want to go out, start their own small business. And let's make sure that they can do that successfully. So I would really focus on what we're already investing in and make sure our kids come out as good, critical thinkers who write well, who read well, and who can handle the basics of a business. Um, for kids who want to go on past that, if they want to go to trade school, let's support them. Let's help make that affordable. 
I don't know if the answer, I don't, I don't know that I have a prescription for the answer about how to make it affordable, but let's make it so college or trade school does not bankrupt you. Let's make it so anybody who wants to go can go. Let's have grants. Let's have loans. Let's make sure that the government is not making money off of student loans. And so I know that you're out meeting and talking to voters. Are, are these the sorts of things that are that you find are resonating with people that you're talking to? These things are resonating with people, um, and I am just starting to get out to all parts of the district. What are you hearing from people? Well, I'm hearing a lot about the environment, and I'm hearing a lot of anti our current administration sentiment. Yeah. <laughs> but I am not going to be running uniquely against Trump and the Republicans. I'm really running with a pro-progressive values campaign. Uh, That said, I mean, the elephant in the room is that we just need breaks on this president and on Paul Ryan. And so even if I do the absolute minimal, which is just voting no, I will feel like I've accomplished something there. If we can get a majority in Congress and I can advance some very progressive concepts like giving every kid a fair start and head start programs for kids and doubling down on health care, I, I, uh, I would be delighted. We are absolutely hoping for a Democratic majority in 2018. Yes. Yeah, for sure, because that will absolutely, but in, in addition to pushing back against a lot of the things that, you know, Trump and the GOP are doing, it would allow the Democrats a chance to actually push some things forward, which would be nice. Um, so in your first campaign, Andy, you talk also about supporting small businesses. Um, that's an uphill battle in the age of Walmart and Amazon. What sorts of policies would you propose that would help small business owners here in the state? Uh, I believe we can use tax rates to make it easier to have a small business. I think we're going to need to look at the wage question and how you balance a an acceptable wage, like what's being thrown around is, is $15 per hour, with the ability for a business to thrive. And I think I need to just talk with some economists and small mm. business owners to see how to best balance that. Because uh, I'm sure you're going to get asked that question. That's certainly something that comes up a lot. Do you support a $15, minim, a $15 minimum wage? So you're saying that you would like to kind of look at the uh, economic impact of that potentially. Definitely. I was just in a small town in Montana and um, had a lot of conversations about small businesses and what was going on in these particular very, very small towns. Um, As soon as people hear that you're running for Congress, all kinds of interesting conversations come up. And I was told that pretty much every small business in that town would go out of business if there were a $15 minimum wage. So although to me, living on the western part of this district and close to Seattle, it seems like a very reasonable step, in a lot of parts of this district and this country, it, it really would be detrimental. So I think this may need to be solved on a more local level. And so from the flip side of that, from a worker's standpoint, what do you say to somebody who is working a minimum wage job and can't get by on what they're being paid? Of course. So to that person who is working a minimum wage job in Seattle, I think they need $15 an hour. Absolutely. But if you're in a very tiny town where the cost of living is lower, perhaps you can get by on a lower salary. Okay. So then, and and then just sort of keeping on that thread, 
how do you create more jobs really in uh, particularly blue collar jobs, I think, in the more rural districts of our state? Get, they do get left out of the conversation. And I know that's that was a bit of a narrative in, in the 2016 election. But I think statistics have borne it out. Um, you know, they don't have the same job prospects as people do, say, in King County and Seattle. So how do you address something like that? Well, I think automation is really a big part of the threat there. Uh, Again, having people coming out of high school with the ability to learn well and nimble minds means that whatever the economy throws our way, hopefully we'll be able to redirect a little bit. This is always sort of a, a moving target for us. And I think right now, I've said it a couple times that that investing in clean energy as you know the next step in our economy is a great way to bring blue collar jobs back to employ a lot of people and to really do you know excellent work to advance the health of our planet um i'll leave it there okay so we have some listener questions uh julian danley from wenatchee asks what is your opinion on trump cutting teen pregnancy prevention funding and would you work with other members of congress to reverse this devastating decision how loudly can I scream right now? Right, yeah. um, of course, it's another absurd Trump decision. Um, I did send an email about this out to um, out to my followers and supporters. Um, you know, during Democrat administrations, pregnancy rates go down, abortion rates go down. I had a, an interesting conversation with uh, with two of my nieces. I don't know if they'll listen to this. Um, both are very religious, and both are Republican. Um, one uh, says that she would be a Democrat were it not for the choice issue. And that always breaks my heart. The other very wisely said, you know, I'm really bothered by abortion, which is fine. But I understand that we have fewer abortions during Democratic administrations. And so she always votes Democrat. Really? Yes. And um, I was so proud of her <laughs> um, because I, I, I just think I think we have to look at the whole picture here. Um, anyway, cutting pregnancy prevention programs is just plain dumb. Um, we need comprehensive sex ed in order to prevent pregnancies. We need free or cheap uh, contraception uh, what else can I say? Abstinence-only well, yeah, education does not work. Right. And you also have gone on record as saying that you uh, obviously support a woman's right to choose. Absolutely. 100%. Yep. Uh, Bill Gliewitz, who is a co-leader of Indivisible Woodenville, asks, and this is a little bit of a curveball question, when was the last time you changed your mind on an important issue? Oh, I just talked about one a moment ago. <laughs> The uh, but you didn't know that that's how I was um, discussing it. So I was firmly committed to a fifteen dollar minimum wage across the country. Okay, I was really on board with that, and having these conversations really opened my eyes to the fact that I may be seeing things through a limited lens, and that I really need to be talking to more small business owners in more small towns to understand the implications that would have locally. Well, there you go. I think he wanted to uh, just see if you were somebody who is uh, flexible. And I I think a a number of members of Congress are not very flexible in their thinking. And so uh, it sounds like you are somebody who is going to look at the data. I will absolutely look at the data. I think one advantage of being a pediatrician, and, and I think this is probably true of all doctors, is that we run into situations all the time where we don't know, and we have to say, you know, I got to look that up. Can I call you after work today, or can I call yeah. you tomorrow? 
Um, I have no uh, shame in saying, I don't know, and I need to look something up and get you, back you to you. You have no ego about that. Yeah. Generally speaking, I have no ego. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious to know how, since this is a show for and about the Indivisible movement, I'm curious to know how you view Indivisible and other grassroots groups like it, in, especially in today's political world. I am incredibly grateful for Indivisible. Uh, you know, like many of us, right after the election, we are all looking for what we could do. Yeah. You know, we started with the Women's March. But finding those Indivisible groups has been tremendously helpful. In fact, I would go so far as to say that my candidacy is because of the Indivisible movement. I mean, this is a very um, empowering process to say that, you know, you can come as just a regular citizen and you can make phone calls and you can write letters and you can uh, join in protests and you can make a difference. And here I am now running for office. And there you go. It spurred you to action. All right. It did. Uh, so if people would like to get involved, they like what they've heard. Uh, if they want to volunteer, they want to donate. Uh, how can they get in touch? I would love to have support. Uh, my my uh, website is drkimschreier.com. I'm going to spell that out because I have a tongue twister name. So it's <laughs> D-R-K-I-M-S-C-H-R-I-E-R.com. Perfect. Well, Kim Schreier, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, Stefan. It's been a delight. And we will end on this week's call to action. But uh, before we begin, we want to take a moment to acknowledge the victims of the shootings at Freeman High School in Rockford, as well as their families. It's a horrific and sadly all too common situation, and we are sending love and support to the community out in Rockford. Uh, and I think a very general call to action, one that Washington Democratic Chair Tina Podolodowski just tweeted out, is to do whatever we can to keep people safe from gun violence. And that, in my editorial opinion, means pushing our legislators for sensible gun laws. It's an ongoing struggle, but it is one that we very clearly need to keep taking on. So another issue that we clearly need to continue taking on is DACA. And on that note, I will say that there have been some bright spots around the country. This is turning out to be a highly mobilizing issue on the progressive left. Protests supporting DACA and Dreamers are happening all over the country, in front of Trump Tower, in the offices of Iowa Senator Jody Ernst, even in Trump's D.C. hotel, where protesters snuck in, erected a Confederate statue depicting Jeff Sessions, and then tore it down. That was outstanding work. And so, once again, this week's call to action has to do with showing our support for DACA recipients by calling both of our senators and asking them to attach the DREAM Act to any must-pass piece of legislation. There are guidelines from Indivisible Guide that I will post on the site that detail what this is all about and how it works. But uh, it would seem that the Democrats do have some momentum in Congress right now, and they should take advantage of that by saving some 800,000 members of our society from needless deportation. So let's call our senators and tell them that we support them attaching the DREAM Act to all must-pass legislation. That is this week's Call to Action. (music) 
And that'll do it for this week's show, everybody. If you would like to learn more about this show, just head over to indivisiblepodcast.org. You will find links to all of the things that we talk about here. And there is a searchable back catalog of shows for you to check out. Our email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. Again, indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. Uh, please keep all the wonderful feedback coming. I-, I love it. Oh, and our Twitter handle is at indivisiblepod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative Inc. Thank you again to my guests, Heidi Groover and Kim Schreier. And thanks also to Anna Sophia Knauf and to Michael Beckendorf. And thanks as always to you for listening, and we'll see you guys next time. Bye.